Good morning, afternoon, or evening, and welcome to the Bloody Disgusting Network. The following show is just horrifying. Beware. My friendship to all of you precludes my involvement with any one of you. But if you want to make love, then I do too, and I'll be right there behind you. Greetings, constant listeners, and welcome yet again to the Losers Club, a Stephen King podcast. Uh, today, Mel and I are back. Say hello, Mel. Hello, Mel. And uh, <laughs> uh, we're back with the next installment of our author series. We that, should really uh, name this. Listeners, any suggestions? Maybe if you're a patron, like hit us up <laughs> in the Discord. Uh, I'll try to think of something, but it's been fun so far. We just need to, maybe an official title. Yeah, we don't have an official title. I'm just, yeah. Uh, but we we started this little experiment a couple months ago. We talked to John Darniel from The Mountain Goats about his new novel, Devil House. Um, and uh, this month, we're talking to Stephen Graham Jones, who is pretty wildly prolific uh, horror writer right now. You might know he's written Mongrels. He wrote The Only Good Indians. And he just released My Heart is a Chainsaw Um uh, earlier this was it earlier this year or was it last year i don't have the exact date in front of me regardless it's still very new and it's a very very cool book and we were extremely stoked to talk to steven for this series but yeah basically what if this is your first time listening this is just our second episode so uh but we basically just wanted to provide a venue to talk to modern horror authors since one of the questions we get from you listeners a lot is if i like stephen king who else should i be reading that's writing books um you know that's who are the young bucks in this scene and uh <laughs> and uh, who's just writing spooky stuff right now um yeah yeah, that's not Stephen King. And they don't have to be even reminiscent of King. Um, they're, they're just kind of contemporaries. And Stephen Graham Jones is someone I've admired for a really long time. His short stories are incredible. I'm I'm always, if you haven't heard of him, what I urge you to do is look up Father, Son, Holy Rabbit. It's a short story that you can devour uh, in probably under an hour. And it will give you a really good idea of what this man is capable of. It's one of my favorites. Yeah, so we have this, this episode is pegged to My Heart is a Chainsaw, and uh, a quick synopsis, I think it's kind of kibble for horror fans in a lot of ways. It's about uh, a young girl in a uh, town in Idaho called Indian Lake, and it is a, she's obsessed with uh, slasher films specifically. Uh, if you've seen, like, the new Scream movie, which we talked with Stephen about, uh, you know, it's very similar in terms of a book that understands the genre in which it belongs. So I think what really struck me is that, you know, when you read, I think, the synopsis for this story, it has the potential to be that kind of uh, quirky, whimsical kind of take on horror where you have this person who is obsessed with slasher films and knows everything about them who finds themselves in a real life slasher. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of, you know, I think the uh, elevator pitch for the book. But what I think makes the book pretty special is that it doesn't compartmentalize that sort of traditional narrative in the way you think it's going to. This is very much a story about uh, a young girl who is very much an alien in her whole town and that this obsession of hers, it's not a cute uh, personality quirk. It's something that kind of defines her whole outlook and her whole existence in ways that are very alienating. And I think that was to me, I mean, I think the book's a great read. The prose is, um, you know, very propulsive. Uh, it's funny. It's got a good sense of humor. Uh, the gore is there. Uh, you know, this is definitely it's a there. book that, yeah, the, this is a book that very much delivers on what it promises, uh, you know, a book called My Heart is a Chainsaw Should Be. And so, um, so it has all of that. But what it really has for me is a really great character study of you know, a young person whose brain has more or less been, I think, uh, you know, molded and um, I don't know, I don't want to say rotted, but there is something, uh, I think, um, dehumanizing about the way that this person um, attaches their personality to horror. And we talk about that in our interview about the whole idea of um, how personal horror is mm -hmm. to people and the ways in which um, that obsession can take hold in your life. But Mel, what for you, what was it about this book that stood out to you? Um, 
And uh, yeah, so like, I guess, what is your kind of brief review here? Sure. I mean, I love that you open with the idea of the elevator pitch being if you're a horror fan, you'll kind of recognize the Easter eggs here. Mm -hmm. Um, But I totally agree. This is not Cabin in the Woods. This isn't like fun, weedy time. You know, I'll watch Cabin in the Woods for a good laugh now and again, but I appreciate something like this much more, which is delving into how obsession can be alienating as you say also a protective mechanism yeah something that totally permeates your entire life and the way that you view reality i mean i'm always in my own work even trying to explore how um how obsession causes delusion and what happens when that delusion is forcibly broken what that does to a person what put it there in the first place i mean these are all really uh essential questions in this book and we get so close to jade the main character um that you just cannot help but feel absolutely heartbroken for her, um, even when she behaves in ways that are certainly not like societally endorsed. Um, <laughs> just in conversation, like she's she's very awkward. She's always citing these slashers. She's trying to sort of make it happen in the real world. Um, well, and she's of course, not just and she's not just awkward. She's sometimes like actively antagonistic. Oh and, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, and kind of repellent and i think that but the thing is it's it's a it's a character study that very much balances the poles here and i think that's something we also talk with steven about is this question you know kind of the age-old question that i think can be a somewhat annoying argument these days but is still a necessary one which is the the question of likable characters you know Mm -hmm. and um and i think that because I think that's something we talk about with King a lot, too, is sometimes we're like, he's trying to make this character likable in sort of a universal way. And in doing so, we kind of don't like this right, character. Right, right. Uh, and I think it is hard, though, to create um, a complex character that is appealing, but also deep. And the cool thing about Jade is that, you know, she's just as unappealing as she is uh, compelling. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, there was, uh, I will say, I had sort of a visceral reaction at times to this character because her life is is miserable and it's not misery porn it's just um my heart bleeds for this girl because even though i know i wouldn't enjoy being around her my heart bleeds for her and i think that's such a successful uh trick that this book pulls totally and that it, it has yeah because that's so hard i think to create a character like that um i also so yeah. want to shout out a quality of of stephen graham jones's prose that i that i love and that I mean, I'm so steeped in in One Heat Minute right now. I'm listening listening to One Heat Minute, which is a, a movie that takes the or a podcast that takes the movie Heat minute by minute, and they they're always talking about trusting the audience's intelligence and these blink and you'll miss it moments. And I think Stephen Graham Jones does that so well in his longer work. It, it is going to move forward. And it's going to demand your attention in a way that I think not all literature, certainly not all horror does. Um, it's so sophisticated and it really just requires you to be immersed in the prose um, because he knows the blocking of every scene and and what's going on um, down to minute details and, and characters that you just kind of need to be paying attention to, dialogue you need to be paying attention to. It's really rich. It's really complex. It's got all this these layers of history in there as well. Everything seems relevant by the end. Um, on a character level and on a town level. And I, I just love how much, I hate the phrase like trust its audience's intelligence. And I, I think what's more accurate is that it sort of like doesn't give a shit about the audience's intelligence. It's yeah, like doing its yeah, own yeah. thing. Like, you know, it's just going to go. And his his writing is, I think, so, um, I, I don't know. I just love, I love reading him for that, for that reason. I feel um, like it's a challenge in like the best way. I, I sort of felt that with Darnell's book too, that felt... Um, so in depth and like you really had to kind of keep one hand on the wall as you traced where you were going. Um, and, and I really appreciate that. Yeah, this is uh yeah. So stay tuned for the interview. This is a really good one. And if you have any ideas for other authors that we should talk to, uh, you know, join the losers club, Patreon and let us know in the discord or just let us know on social media, but we'd love for you to join us on the Patreon at patreon.com slash the barons. Lots of good content there. Um, and yeah, stick around to the end of this interview. Steven has some recommendations for other modern horror authors that you should check out. And he's got some really good recommendations, some stuff I hadn't heard of. So uh, yeah. So without further ado, here's our interview with Stephen Graham Jones. 
All right, Stephen. Uh, so good to have you. Uh, since this is a Stephen King pod, you made it very easy for us to ask our first question, which is in the afterword of My Heart is a Chainsaw, you, the, the first thing you cite as an inspiration for this story was The Raft uh, from Skeleton Crew by Stephen King. So I'd love to just kick things off by hearing about that story in particular. When did you first read it? And uh, what would you say um, that story really contributed in a lot of ways to My Heart is a Chainsaw? You know, I wish I could pinpoint my first reading of The Raft by Stephen King, but yeah, I've read it so many times that I feel like it's just part of my DNA, like it's always been there. You know, I can't remember. It must have been. It was probably the first time I read Skeleton Crew. I don't you know, he was back then. He was a lot of his stories would show up in different, you know, um, magazines. And I didn't have access to those magazines. So I think it would have been in the collection and it almost definitely would have been in the mass market paperback. You know, so it wouldn't have been the year it was the year the hardcover was released. But um, yeah, I've been reading that story for years. I think for a long time, that was my favorite Stephen King story. And it may still be. Um, I like the jaunt a lot as well, though. And, yeah. Um, that, course, those are our top two, I think. Like, literally our top two. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> nice, nice. And also, what's what's that one? The survivor type? I like the survivor yeah, type. Yeah, survivor oh, type yep, rules. Yep, yep. Yeah. <laughs> but um, no, the raft, what it, what it gave me, I think, was the setting for My Heart is a Chainsaw, really, a lake. And also the setting for... Um, this other novel I get, I, I did, but um, I, I love, like, I think that just it, it that cemented the connection between large bodies of water and horror for me, really. And people like those people, that's just such a, such a fertile horror setting. People trapped on a raft, they can't get in the water. They'll die if they get in the water. What are they going to do? They can't stay there forever. Such a wonderful setup, I think. And you King, can see the shore. It's right there. I know, it's right there. Yeah. And, and and then the then the the oil slick the monster whatever it is starts to creep up through the um, spaces between the boards you know and um, yeah yeah it's just just really really good I think and and of course the adaptation in what was it creep show I guess creep show too yeah yeah it's a little it's a little bit different um same premise of course it gets a little like uncomfortable of course. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, for uh, the, I believe it was the, I can't remember which anniversary, but for the anniversary of Skeleton Crew one year, I mm. posted a video of uh, for our listeners just reading the description of Zeke being <laughs> dismantled through the, uh, the, yeah. the, the, the slats of the raft is it's literally probably one of the most gruesome things I've ever read. So gnarly. Yeah. Um, so how about Stephen King in general? Do you remember, you know, the first time you ever read King and, uh, mm. and what impact he had on you? Yes, this would have been, man, it must have been 88. It could have been 89, but I bet it was 88. It was whatever year Tommy Knackers came out. When was that? Yeah, around then, 87, yeah. 88. Yeah, yeah. Um, I had found a hardcover of it somehow. I mean, I was reading all kinds of books. Every book I could get my hand on, and the, the, the more gore on the cover, the better. But <laughs> um, somehow I'd never read a King until until Tommy Knockers. I picked that up in hardcover for a dollar on a used bin somewhere. I was living in Colorado Springs, going to Air Academy High. I was a junior in high school. And I stayed up all night reading that book because I had to get to the end. You know, and I was just so blown away by these um these D batteries being used in egg <laughs> cartons to power things and all this alien technology. And I was completely invested in that main guy's like um struggle with alcoholism, you know. And and I mean, of course, then later on I'd read Shining and see that there's similar things going on. But um no, I just really, really were. I still love Tommy Tom Knockers. I know a lot of people don't don't like that. That was going to be my next question. Are you a defender? We're both defenders. Yeah, uh, yeah no, I, I like Tommy Knockers. And yeah. I especially like the end. I think that's a really cool end with the, him just blasting off. Uh, yeah. That ending, that final image to me, I've always said is like, it's one of the more emotional endings, I think, yeah. King, in that the image is so striking and and sad in so many yeah. ways you know and yeah, it totally um, is yeah. no i just I, I love that book you know i need to go back and read it again actually it's been i haven't read it since like 88 i guess so yeah it's such a fun intro very chaotic intro to yeah. the king yeah. oeuvre it's always yeah. fun to talk people's first kings because mm. you know I, for me it was like the stand it's like a classic mm. right and uh, for others it'll be it or some or the shining yeah. or carrie uh yeah. and then i'll meet somebody who their first book was Dreamcatcher, and it's like yeah. that's yeah. such a bizarre one you know and yeah. but yeah. we all kind of find our way in uh no. 
But you know, yeah. you know, I, I like Dreamcatcher too. I know everybody doesn't like that one. I like Dreamcatcher. <laughs> I like from a Buick Eight. You know, I like like the ones that I'm not supposed to like. I think I like them a lot. We like Dreamcatcher too. We just talked about that one, and I <laughs> yeah. I didn't expect to be a defender of that one, and I yeah. and I pretty much was. No, <laughs> Co- think, caveats in place. Yeah, and Dreamcatcher. I think you know King. He's really good at giving like a physical space to um mental processes you know like yeah kind of like a cyberspace but i think in dream country does it better than he ever has all those file cabinets and then you've got mr gray and i just thought it was really really well done yeah uh what are some other like uh, as you was king something that you uh after reading the tommy knockers began consuming you know uh quickly because you're like oh i gotta read everything this guy's done and he's got so much or was it more gradual thing it was probably more gradual. I, I did like Tommy Knockers, but you know, at the time I didn't pay much attention to who wrote what book. Mm-hmm. I just read more and more books. And so if whatever King I encountered had a good cover, I'd pick it up and read it, you know? And I think after a while I figured out, wait, this is the same dude, you know, this is, <laughs> yeah. I've been reading this dude for a while. And I remember I, um, a few years after Tommy Knockers, I fell really hard for it. And that's probably nostalgically, that's the, probably my favorite King. I think the, like talking about, well put together novels man it might be the shining for me is this most well put together let me think no either that or the outsider i like the outsider a lot too yeah yeah i i'm curious like as the years have gone on and you kind of look back at your own body of work which i've seen many people compare you in terms of uh the prolific nature of your writing to king because he's so prolific and he also is you know, he's not a template writer. He doesn't write the same thing. He's his books are all very different and explore different topics and horrors and drama and uh, themes. And I think your work is very similar in that um, each book seems to have a very specific point of view. Um, But I think for you personally, when you look at King's work and you look at your own body of work, do you see any of his influence having, you know, aside from stuff that's obvious like the raft but um like any themes or any uh ideas from king that you see sort of you know touching on in your own work or things that you can look back on and say that did inspire me yeah i guess there's two things um and i'm probably gonna misquote king on this i'll probably even paraphrase him poorly but he says if he can't scare somebody then he wants to grow like he has three layers if he can't yeah. scare what, what, how, what does that go do you remember uh it's it's, in it's like Macabre. horrifying, terrifying, and the gross out. It's like yeah. horror, terror, well, the, disgust. Yeah, the third one, he's like, there's like the greatest form of horror, which I think oh. is more like getting at some, like, you know, the kind of uh, creeping dread. And then mm-hmm. there's uh, the jump scare, right? Something along that nature. And then he says, when all that fails, revulsion. And mm-hmm. so, yeah. Yeah, no, and I completely subscribe to that too. I feel myself falling through those same awnings in my writing, you know? I'm, because, I mean, number one, you just can't do the most extreme dread all the time. You know, that's yeah. going to get monotonous. You got you to vary it. But um, I love that hierarchy that he created. I think it's I think it's accurate as well. Um, but really, what I've, the, the biggest thing I've taken from King myself is um, attention to character. You know, yeah. it's so easy in horror fiction to um, dream up a terrible meat grinder of a premise and then throw cardboard cutouts of characters into it, you know, and call that scary, but it's not scary if we don't care about the characters. And that's what King taught me as a reader and a writer was that um, it's okay to spend shoot 18, 24% of the, the first of the book, letting us into the mind and the heart of this character such that we engage with them. We identify with them. We believe in them and then force them into the meat grinder. And we're going to be so much more invested in the outcome. And I, I try to do that every chance I get. Yeah. That actually opens up, I think, a good gateway into discussing My Heart as a Chainsaw. Something Mel and I discussed uh, after reading this book was that when it started, I think we both saw Jade as, you know, we saw the archetype of, uh, you know, the girl who is obsessed with slashers and obsessed with horror. And, you know, you see that trope. And I think it's often portrayed as sort of a a weird cute like where it's like oh her obsession is really cute and and kind of adorable and everybody thinks it's neat or yeah it's quirky or if she's weird it's kind of like oh she paints her fingernails black or something and I think what we thought was so striking about this book was that you resist that and I think what you uh, find with this character is that she alienates most of the people around her Mm -hmm. Um, like it makes us empathize with her so well while simultaneously thinking that she'd be a really difficult person to be around. And so I'd love to hear your thoughts on developing 
a character like that, and, you know, and I think there's often a lot of debate around the question of likability with characters, and I guess maybe your general thoughts on that. Yeah. No, number one, I don't think, you know, protagonists or really any characters in a novel or a story need to be likable. They need to, it needs to be someone we can identify with, we can engage with. Like Hannibal Lecter, I don't think we like Hannibal Lecter. We appreciate his ability, you know, we pre- mm-hmm. appreciate his um, his class, his precision, his um his, um, I don't know, his x-ray eyes, how you can see into things and know the truth of them. You know, we appreciate that, but we don't have to like Hannibal Lecter. And we don't have to like our protagonist either. Um, Patrick Bateman in American Psycho, we don't like that dude, <laughs> but um, we like to read about him. You yeah. know? And, and I think the trick is um, don't make the main character, well, I, I'm, you know, I was going to say don't make the main character push the reader away but there's actually a book what is the last days of jack sparks i forget oh the, yeah. yeah yeah i've not read that one but i read the the author's yeah. follow-up and it's similar in a lot of yeah. yeah yeah that 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 protagonist is reprehensible like i do not like him i want only the worst for him nevertheless the book <laughs> is compulsively readable you yeah. know um so maybe there's i was gonna like try to lay down a rule but to tell you the truth i think um I don't know if there are hard and fast rules, you know, it's just, oh, sure, well, yeah. there's well-told stories and poorly told stories, you know? It's gotta be interesting. She's so yeah. interesting. I, yeah. I really am interested in how you approach writing a character that is this obsessive, like k- keeping mm. that obsession going for the length of a novel seems mm. like it would have so many challenges associated with it. You gotta yeah. be consistent. You gotta be like withholding information a little bit because we're only getting her, the view that you know yeah. she wants us to see. Yeah. And then you gotta get the moments when the obsessions run up against things that can't be denied, like truths that are gonna challenge it. And how, do, how did you approach all of that? How yeah. did you feel about writing obsession? You know, kind of my, my rule was, um, the reader can't know things that Jade wouldn't tell herself, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so she's, comp- she's always trying to push things to the side such that she can pretend that she's only this, but she's also that at the same time, you know? Um, but yeah, the, the trick with Jade with I'm um, getting her into the hearts of the reader anyway, was that um, she is obsessed to the point that um, it's, it's almost repulsive, you know, like we, we kind of were like, how can we even walk into your world? You know, you don't want in your world you want it just you and your vhs tapes but um and also her content her chosen content is slashers which many people kind of knee-jerk resist you know they say they're too formulaic they're misogynistic Uh, there's a whole catalog of reasons not to like the slasher you know and um and jade of course has chosen or kind of fell into the slasher very much on purpose she's insulating herself with it as a way to keep her safe because it does keep everyone else at arm's length and if everyone else is at arm's length then she can't be hurt anymore you know um so for her it's a definitely a double-edged sword um it helps her get through her days it doesn't help her get through her life necessarily you know yeah yeah that seems like a good uh i want to circle back on jade in a bit because i think there's a lot to unpack but with slasher specifically uh i know i you know you mentioned in your afterward and i saw in some other interviews you talk about you know growing up uh the video store near your house where you're able to rent all the good ones, nobody, I had a similar video store where they let me rent the R-rated, the nasty stuff. And, you know, we hid it from our parents, but it was very formative. And uh, I, I'd i love to hear, though, you know, you love slashers growing up. How has your relationship to them changed as you've gotten older? Do you still get, do they still scare you? Or do you kind of view them through a different prism now? I think a little bit of a different prism. And it, it, it's probably just a function of aging. It's not, I don't think it's really due to a re- due to how many slashers I've seen, like the volume of input, I think it is just as I've gotten older, um, like the 80s slashers, I love them. I mean, I even kind of adore their low production values and the kind of ham-handed acting and the poor dialogue and all, all that stuff. That's kind of appealing, you know, but um, but there, there's always like, um, it's almost like compulsive that they have to showcase all this nudity, you know, and <laughs> Um, initially like when i'm 12 years old watching it i didn't think anything of it but now that i'm 50 years old i'm like well do we really need to exploit these young women just off the bus to hollywood or whatever it is it it feels kind of skeevy and um i mean i'm not saying we need to recut these movies and cut out the nudity that would probably mess the movies up but i am glad that when screen came along it um maybe it was a different sensibility in the 90s or maybe it's just Wes craven's influence you know i don't know but we started to see less and less um nudity in the slashers and i really i like that a lot you know i think that's making the storytelling rise to a higher caliber you know yeah 
I totally get that. You start to feel worldly when you first get into horror. You're like, oh, it's it's opening up all these doors. And then you Mm. watch enough and you're like, ah, I see where this fits. I see what bucket this goes into. (laughs) Um, It's like when you you first start reading Rolling Stone, you're like, they can cuss? This is amazing. And after a while, then you're like, I don't care about this profanity. (laughs) Yeah, initially you're like, this is freedom. This is what it looks like. (laughs) How do you, with, with, genre conventions like that this is a book that's deeply concerned with genre and i i wanted to ask what felt sacred to you about the slasher and what felt ripe for play like how did you want to subvert while still kind of maintaining some element of faith you know what i wanted to um maintain was the kind of the scaffolding of the the slasher how you start out with um, a blood sacrifice you identify the crew you move on to kind of a i don't know you eventually get to a third real body dump a reveal and the final girl versus a slasher showdown just all that i wanted to make sure to hit all those things but what i wanted to come at was kind of the same thing i came at the Lincoln indians um just the concept of the final girl which um i think started out really pure and it's become um kind of exclusive you know like um like like my dream for for my heart is a chainsaw is for a 12 or 13 year old girl to read it and and say that could be me i could fight that hard you know um but over the years over all the different iterations of the slasher since what since i guess um jess and black christmas possibly um the final girl has become more and more perfect such that she's this shining angel warrior princess up on a mount that um you can't actually see yourself being you know because you don't look like that you don't have like 1500s on your SATs if that's a good score I don't really know SATs very well but um, <laughs> I have I have also forgotten <laughs> but um you can't be everything at once um but what you can do is you can fight for yourself you can push back against bullies and that to me is what the final girl is about essentially she is about this person is trying to exert power over me it's trying to terrorize me and I'm not gonna let that happen you know and Jade yeah. gets into that herself like I love her take on jaws for example or or even another movie mentioned in here is the hitcher which is like one of my absolute favorites i that's one where like a pretty boy gets to be the final girl in my (laughs) opinion um Mm -hmm. also the shark is a slasher great great uh love that take on jaws um and actually yeah could you talk a little bit about those essays like i i love her essays to mr holmes and they feel so breakneck and like her need is just like spilling out of them uh, in ways that she's conscious of and not conscious of. And how did it feel to like write those part, those parts specifically? How, how old or close to your heart are the ideas inside those? They're really close. The, the trick with those was I had to make sure they all um, engaged with Jade's issues rather than letting Jade be like a sock puppet I'm using to to give voice to my own slasher theories, you know, it's, it's a fine balancing act. So the first versions of all of these um, slasher one oh ones were much longer, like six to 10 pages generally. And um, luckily my agent and my editor both told me, you know, let's pull this back a little bit. Let's come up with some sort of rule about what can go in and what can't go in. And I had to, it was really violent to me cutting each of them down to a bare two pages because I felt like I'm losing so much, but it made it better. They're, they're right. And, you know, I should back up for people who haven't read My Heart is a Chainsaw. Um, all of the um, chapters are cut up or kind of spaced apart by the Slasher 101 extra credit papers that Jade writes for her history teacher to try to pass history. And the history she writes about is slasher. She's walking him through the genre because he supposedly doesn't know the genre. So she's just holding him by the hand and taking him through Halloween, Friday the 13th, not around Elm Street, all the dark and obscure ones, and just trying to show him what she thinks is real. But what she's really, I think, telling him is how much justice counts, you know, and she's, she's saying there hasn't been justice or fairness in my life. That's why I'm drawn here, you know? Yeah. One of the things I responded to about those essays, it reminded me of a relationship I had with a teacher when I was in high school, um, who was, you know, he was into art films and stuff. He was into uh, indie film. And I knew that because he would have these posters up around the classroom. And I, I love those same movies, but none of my friends did. Nobody in my school did. And and I would just go up to his desk like whenever I could and just hassle him. <laughs> I'm like, please talk to me about these things that I love that nobody else around me does. And and I think when you do love um, such a weird specific genre so much and you don't have anyone else to unload about it to, you want to be that person who's like showing people movies. And, and that's why there was that 
There was that really hyper personal aspect in the relationship with Letha. Is it Letha? Yeah. yeah. Who is um who is you know who she basically deems the final girl of this story, and. Mm-hmm. She was like, I need to teach her how to be a final girl. And a lot of that involved showing her movies. And there was something so sad and um, relatable about the idea that what she really wants is a friend. You know? <laughs> yeah, that's so, exactly right. That, that's what I was going to say when she first approaches those construction guys at the site. That's what she's looking for is just someone to talk to, you know, because she doesn't have that in her life at all. But um, she's kind of the baggage she carries is that the only thing she can talk about is slashers. And so she once she starts spouting off all her slasher theories, it kind of pushes everyone away and makes her the weird kid, um, which is kind of safe for her, you know, Mm. because if they consider the weird kid, the weird kid, they don't have to engage with her, Mm. you know. It's yeah. such an interesting push and pull because he- hearing you guys talk about this, it just strikes me that horror is such a deeply personal genre. Like having any mm-hmm. reaction to horror is like a more personal reaction than you can have to many other genres, yeah. even though a lot of horror fans are like, oh, I'm so tough. I do this because I can handle it, right? Like mm-hmm. there's that that dichotomy there. And I, mm-hmm. I feel like it comes out in analysis too. When we analyze horror, we often blow it up to be, this is very political. This is what it's mm-hmm. talking about when really we're feeling things in our body, right? Like yeah. we're- yeah. Um, no, I, I, that's what I love about horror is it of all the genres, I think it's the one that's the best at provoking a visceral response that you didn't go into this willing to give, you know, because like when we when I go into a horror movie, um, because I don't want to be scared, I'm looking for the zipper on the monster suit, basically, so I can yeah. tell myself it's fake, you know, but it gets to me all the same, you know, and, and yeah, then I'm just reduced to eight year old kids scared of the dark. And I think I'll always be that, you know. Speaking of uh, suits with zippers, you mentioned the Stephen King adaptation, The Night Flyer, but also I know it is also a story yeah. in Nightmares and Dreamscapes. But uh, I think for our listeners, because that that movie, I think the only thing a lot of people remember about The Night Flyer is the costume of the vampire creature, which is both awesome, but also it 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 evokes, I think, those kind of suits that are so elaborate you would see the zipper, but it's also effective. I guess I'm just curious, and I know our listeners will be curious. Is that uh is that a top tier king for you? Is that one that yeah. you think is underrated, perhaps? It really is. And um I wish it had a better release. I don't I don't think it has a good Blu-ray or anything, does it? No. It's very much kind of a forgotten, I yeah. think. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I mean it's a it's a wonderful piece of writing. And um, it's just such a good idea. You know, King is really good at like finding the little um, wedges between everything that no one has exploited yet, you know, mm-hmm. and, and a, a vampire that flies around from place to place. So, well, that's a great idea. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I feel yeah. that way about much of your work, Stephen. And I, I wanted to ask, um, being familiar with your short stories and also your longer works, like, when do you realize this is a novel? This is a short story when you have one of those wedge ideas and you're like, how big yeah. is this wedge? You know, it's it's generally when when that happens, I, I, it's happening right now. Actually, I've been writing all day on something that was supposed to be a novella, and now it's what seventy five, eighty thousand words. It's it's a novel already, um, <laughs> um, and it's not completely unintentional. I don't have time to be writing this novel, but I feel like kind of every like I feel abducted by this novel, so I have to write it. But um, it's generally not they they don't they don't become a bigger project because the story expands, they become a bigger project because the character becomes more full, you know, because mm-hmm. when I have an idea, it's not for a type of character. My idea is for a situation, you know, like what if you were trapped in a room with um, three rats and they were radioactive, like that's a situation, you know, and, and um, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know if radioactive rats are necessarily mean or they're probably just sick, but, but um, <laughs> three of them but, specifically. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, but, I might go into that trying to write a 3000 word story, but then I find out that this person who's locked in the room is actually interesting and I want to go into their story, you know? And so then it becomes a 12,000 word story and it's suddenly an awkward length. I don't know what to do with, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Um, Let's talk a little bit about, um, I want to talk yeah, a little bit more about Jade's sort of desire to impose the structure of the slasher on her reality. Mm-hmm. I feel like horror fans often talk about like the appeal of chaos and carnage, but horror often depicts sort of like tightly controlled chaos, like mm-hmm. chaos bound by a new set of rules or morals. How do you see that balance playing out in contemporary horror, would you say? Oh, that's a good question. Well, you know, in, in a sense, like I think shoot 90% of horror or maybe maybe it's just a generalization you can say about all horror is that um it's basically conservative, I think, in the sense that it's um, 
fighting to reestablish the status quo before this monster lumbered into, into the scene you know i'm um, mm-hmm. like whatever your life was it was probably better before the werewolf got there you know <laughs> and and you want to dial back to before the werewolf got there so you try to beat the werewolf so you can go back to how it was you know um and yeah there is like that maelstrom of of chaos you know for the middle 75 percent of the book of course and um um that that's a ball that's why you read horror i think but um yeah horror I, I never, I never have totally figured it out, but I, my impulse is that horror is basically conservative, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. There Would seems you... to be something oh, go going ahead. on now. Where I feel like sometimes we're getting, uh, like Jordan Peele and and people like mm-hmm. that are are using horror to represent like here is a bit of the status quo that should be overcome, but it's it's sort yeah. of burgeoning still, maybe. Yeah. No. Oh, well, yeah. Stories like you know, Get Out or Victor Duval is doing it too. Um, they're like what genre not just horror i think genre in general anything that like and here's the fantastic allows the writer to do is mm-hmm. to distill and exaggerate and we can apply that to current social concerns you know to current cultural anxieties it's it's like taking taking your current anxiety set to the funhouse you know and looking yeah. at all the portions of it you know yeah and happens that if I really us, blow this yeah, out. <laughs> yeah and i think it allows us to see it better and to maybe not face it down but um and not and maybe just process it and talk about it better you know because i don't think horror actually solves problems i don't know i don't know if literature solves problems really Mm. but i think it does start discussions and those discussions can solve problems for sure and and relevant to that i i really love whenever you speak around um incorporating identity into your fiction and in the afterward here you um to paraphrase you say something like uh I don't want it to be instrumental. I want it to be incidental. And uh, I'm, I'm curious about your process for achieving that, that goal, that balance. And at what stage are you sort of thinking about that the most? Is it revision? Is it showing it to someone else? Is it always on your mind? I think it's just um, so deeply in my DNA that I don't even have to think about it anymore. But like a lot of people, like I remember I've had this happening workshop before where I will turn in a story and the character will, will be indigenous and and people will say, it's a fun story, but um, when are they going to activate their Indian powers? You know, like, <laughs> why, why make this character Indian if they're not, if it's not going to be used in the story? And what they're saying is the default setting is not native. The default setting is white, you know, and um, I want to move that needle a bit such that the de- there's no default setting, basically, mm-hmm. you know, and part of that is making it where like Jade can be Blackfeet and that's not instrumental to the story. You know, she doesn't use any old, old um, Blackfeet stories to win the day or anything like that. Um, it's just incidental. It just happens to be who she is. And so she doesn't have to like um, rip her shirt apart and show her super Indian powers at the end and win the day, you know? Um, mm-hmm. And in fact can be, you know, yeah. irritating or <laughs> acting yeah. in ways that we, <laughs> that people might not condone. Um, I'm so glad that we're seeing that in, in horror, but in all genres now that I, you know, yeah. love to re- read stories about, you know, queer people that are just being mm. assholes because anyone can yeah. be an asshole. No, it's for a long time. And um, at least in, in native, let um, the Indians are always the good guys, you know, and that, that's just as damaging as making us the Raiders, the bad guys, you know, it's a form of essentialism that reduces us to like these three characteristics or whatever. And, and it's so much better when we can be the bad guys too, when we can be anybody, you know? Yeah. Um, I love the way you too that you toy with class and you toy with gentrification in this community. Um, I think some of the things that hit me hardest about Jade and I think always was allowed me to have a baseline of empathy for her, even when I was finding her very irritating, was the fact that, you know, her living situation is is punishing and she's working from such a young age doing uh, punishing manual labor and, uh, you know, work that no one would want to do. And um, and then I think juxtaposing that with the people that come to this town, the founders, as you call them in the book, all these tech CEOs and, and you know, famous golfers and these guys and these people aren't just successful. These are like the upper, upper crust. Uh, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about what motivated you to include that disparity, the class, um, you know, the mm-hmm. class struggle that exists here, that differentiation. And um, yeah, I guess just elaborate on that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, these are the kind of people that could buy Twitter if they wanted to. Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> theoretically. <laughs> yeah, totally theoretically. Um, but you know, my first my first the first reason that I wanted them to be the initial victim pool instead of like the cheerleading squad or something was that 
it's like I feel like in so many slashers, women's bodies are disposable, you know. And so yeah. I thought I want to turn the tables on that and make these fifty-five-year-old guys be the disposable <laughs> ones, you know, because <laughs> they're usually the ones that skate, you know. Like mm-hmm. I mean, for the past few years, we've been seeing all kinds of bad actors on the political arena um, doing terrible stuff and just walking away, like getting no comeuppance for that, you know. And um, yeah. so in my heart is a chainsaw. I wanted to give somebody that blade. <laughs> You know, for sure. Um, but as far as Jade being a custodian, that w- I wonder if that was just me um, less commenting on class difference and more drawing on my own life. Because I used to be a night janitor myself in high school for a while. Of the, I was a night janitor for the biggest daycare in Texas, which was quite a wreck to clean up every night. <laughs> yeah, I was a um, I was a janitor at a hospital. Uh, when I was younger, and I only worked there for two summers, but th- that's the job that I inevitably go to <laughs> whenever I'm discussing my yeah. old jobs or I'm incorporating it into my writing because there's yeah. something visceral about that work that um, doesn't yeah. quite leave you. So especially yeah, no. when you're working in those kind of like you know you and daycare me yeah. in a hospital. It never, yeah. yeah, it never leaves you. Like I'm, I had to borrow a pistol from somebody for that job, not because like there were bad guys around every corner, but because there were clowns painted around every corner, and so. I was terrified. My heart was just pounding because oh. I'm working in these dark halls and I look around, and there's a scary clown. <laughs> a clown that's scary at night, anyways. <laughs> love it. Um, I'd love to talk a little bit about uh, you know, we're talking about all these sort of slasher conventions and stuff like that. When I was reading this, I thought a lot about um a lot of these requels that are coming out, right? Like, and you mentioned Scream and how pivotal Scream was for you, and it was for me, and I think Mel too. I mean, Scream, I think, was for our generation, uh, you know, the Halloween of our generation. And it was very influential and it holds up to this day. It's still very good. And um, I'm curious if you saw Scream uh, or Scream, what is it? The reboot Scream 5, I five, guess. 5 uh, Cream. Yeah, 5 yeah. Cream, cream. As we called it. Um, and so it's, uh, but that that was a movie that was very, very, very similar in the sense of like, um, it's time for the next level of horror academia and self-awareness. And I'm curious if you saw it, what you thought about it in sort of the larger context of both the Scream franchise, but also your book where you are dealing a lot of these same things. Yeah, no. Well, number one, I liked it a whole lot. I thought it, I think so far this year, it's probably been my favorite horror movie. Actually, I saw it at the few, saw it at the theater a few times i've got the blu-ray right here under my microphone to make my microphone taller (laughs) um, yeah no i I completely loved it and i thought it was really nervy i guess this is a spoiler so anybody who doesn't want to spoil or maybe skip 15 seconds ahead but um um that they killed a core like deck member yeah yeah yeah, (laughs) like you expect just red shirts to die but this isn't just red shirts you know and you Um, say in in your book that that character is unkillable and when i I know when i hit that point i laughed (laughs) yeah (laughs) I know that's so rough, huh? um, but I guess Jade is, she's doing this in 2015, you know, so she doesn't mm-hmm. know that right. well, she doesn't know it's going to happen yet, of course. Um, but yeah, um, hopefully I didn't doom that character by saying, <laughs> <I'm killable." laughs> you know, um, but the, and I like how Scream 5 kind of gives itself and its whole class, like of, you know, Halloween and Texas Chainsaw Massacre, it, it gives it, it, it calls them a, what, a legacy sequel or something, you know, yeah. and I like how it names itself and who knows if that name will like catch on and get into circulation. But um, I did like that moment in the, um, the house of Dewey's nephews, those twins, I forget their names. Was it many? Not anyways, whatever their names were, um, where, where his niece, not Dewey, where Randy's niece. Yeah. Um, yeah. Randy's niece like expostulates about this whole horror thing going on right now. It's, it's, it was very similar to, in Scream 4, when Kirby is taking the phone quiz and she lists out every single remake of the past, like, 20 years, you know? Um, it's just, the, that's that, that's the stuff. I mean, Scream is made of wonderful jump scares and a great whodunit dynamic and great red herring games, but it's also made of that, it's not necessarily horror trivia, it's kind of like horror philosophy, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, because we... And I think this is just interesting, and this is something that a lot of these legacy sequels have been grappling with, but we also see it in original horror where there will be winking nods. And, <laughs> and you know, King does this in a lot of his work where he'll say, you know, this is just like the Blair Witch Project or something. <laughs> do you think it's – Do you what do you make of sort of the idea that writing modern horror, you sort of have to reckon with <laughs> uh, the horrific images that have permeated culture uh, to some degree? And I, the thing is, King yeah. actually does this in – 
he reference self-references his own work occasionally where i'll mention the, the twins from the shining you know like which aren't you know or that which, writer uh, from bangor and yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um that sort of self-referential quality and you know it's here very plain spoken here because you have this character that is directly referencing and applying all of these uh structures to this story but that i guess that idea of reckoning with the past and the iconography of horror and modern horror is that something that uh writers almost have to do these days I think so. And, you know, to back up a bit, I, the first place I saw that in King, I guess, was The Stand. It's early, like in the first 10% when he's introducing that character who is the horror writer. I forget his name now. But um, anyways, he says he's one of those horror writers. He's one of those writers who writes present tense horror stories. Like he couldn't be a worse person, you know. Yeah. I, have to say, I wonder if King had done some present horror by that point. You know? He's. I feel like he's done it once right. or twice, but he definitely has yeah. like a, a bee in his bonnet about people who do present yeah. tense. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And my heart is a chainsaw. It's present tense. So yeah. it's, you know, it's always no further reaper when it comes. But um, 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 then the horror novel I'm writing out right now is past tense. I just, I just want to be sure I hadn't lost those muscles. Yeah. Um, but yes, um, it's like um how to say it um for the longest time really I'm, I'm not exclusively up until scream but scream is the the big like sea change for the for the genre um slashers existed in a world in which slashers didn't exist before at the big on the 42nd street at the drive-in anywhere you know so these characters when they start realize they were getting picked off one by one they didn't say oh this is like jason this is like michael this is like freddie they're like what's happening you know yeah. mm-hmm. like zombie movies had to go through this change as well for a long time every time um the dead got up and started walking people would run away and say we can't handle this this doesn't make sense instead of saying zombie you know <laughs> <laughs> after a while you have to incorporate not a living dead into the past and what that does is it means that this story is happening in our world because if if you have to presume a world which never had not living dead or halloween or friday the 13th then you're really you're basically operating in like a side universe and that's not as scary because that's not our world our world has these movies and so it's much better to operate in our own world i think i love that she starts using the names of slashers as verbs in this like it so permeates her experience of the world that it becomes a vocabulary where she can just apply it um thank you thanks for noticing that um and you know that she says about um a slasher like hotters his head over i think like kane yeah i love that I always feel I've always felt always feel bad about that because really Michael's the first one to do it in 78 in Halloween when he um, stabs who is that guy Danny he, yeah. he stabs somebody up to the wall and then he like cuck his head over like a dog and um but Michael Myers doesn't become a good verb so I had to <laughs> right. say it's that S at the end. <laughs> and you also, yeah, I think you do a uh, shining Dover at one point too, which uh, which I appreciated. Um, you mentioned Don't Fear the Reaper, which is your, because yeah, uh, it turns out that My Heart is a Chainsaw is, is going to be a trilogy. Uh, oh. And so I'd love to hear, well, I guess a couple of things here. One, you talk about in your afterward, and I was reading in some interviews that, mm-hmm. you know, My Heart is a Chainsaw was a book that you wrote and rewrote and rewrote because you were trying to find the right way in with it. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess- for our, this could be a good chain question is for our listeners, if you could perhaps provide, uh, you know, maybe just a brief version of what the creation of this book looked like. And then I guess, did all that material that you create, is that what helped you develop this idea for a trilogy? Or was it sort of the final form of the book that you said, okay, I want to keep going in this world? It was actually the final form because I never envisioned this as a trilogy when I was writing it. And in all my initial versions of this, um, at the end of the novel it was like the end of hamlet everybody's dead on the floor you know and there was nobody to carry on a sequel i guess i could have done a sequel in the same place with a different cast of characters but that would have felt kind of wrong to me but then my editor joe monty read the end of the novel and he'd already you know picked the novel up and was going to publish it and he said you know um i understand you've been working on this novel for eight years which is the longest i've ever worked on anything you know except for raising kids and marriage i guess i've worked on those (laughs) but um but um, even trucks, I don't work on trucks that long. I give up on them. You know? <laughs> um, but he said, um, I'm going to give you like, here's a list of four things, which I think you can't do at the end of this novel. And they were all things I was doing, of course. <laughs> and so I pushed back and, you know, come on, I've been writing this novel forever. I know, I know it better than anybody. And he kept saying, uh, 
I'm not going to make you do this, but I am telling you what I think is best, you know, because that's the way Joe Monte works. And so finally, just kind of out of frustration, I opened up a side file and I said, you know, what? I'm going to I'm going to do it like he says, just to prove that he's wrong, you know, yeah. which is really petty of me. But I'm not saying <laughs> I'm, writers are fairly petty. I was <laughs> going to say <laughs> we're all petty. <laughs> and, um, and then I did it and wow, it worked and I was blown away. And and the result of that new ending that Joe Monty had gifted me was that now this book wanted to be a trilogy. The story was mm-hmm. not um, nipped off at the end. It was opening up instead. To me, it was anyways. And and yeah, I cut. So I bet I've cut. Shoot. I mean, I've written this novel from beginning to end over and over so many times that there's probably 250,000 extra words just left left in different versions, you know, because um, you know, Jade was not always the protagonist. Jade was not always in the novel. There was turtles used to be really important. There's all kinds of things, <laughs> but um, that all fell away. And um, I don't think I'll, there is one thing I'm going to go back and recuperate for book three, I think. But as for book two, none of that is like leftover material from book one. It's all, all new stuff for Don't mm-hmm. Fear the Reaper. I have to ask about the final image, the final scene in this book, which which to mm-hmm. me feels so like, crucial and heart-wrenching and I read it several times was that something that that came from you or your editor or was that like always a part of it or that was never a part of it until the very last moment what happened was I turned I finally did the end as Joe wanted like adhering to the rules he laid down Mm -hmm. or the guidelines he offered and and I had an ending and um it, it was I think it was sufficient it wasn't yet like resonant you know but I couldn't think of anything else and so we were going through production and then um we had some snag and it may have been pandemic related where we had like three months of not working on this novel anymore and during those three months suddenly that final image just popped in my head and I went and wrote it down and mailed it to Joe and he said yep that works and um (laughs) and so to tell you the truth if I hadn't had those like three months to mull it over in the like not front burner stuff but like back burner stuff while I'm doing other other things then I don't think I ever lucked on that image at all i mean the uh, the how do i say this without spoiling it the um the non-human things that are in mm-hmm. that final image yeah. had been in the novel throughout and i just finally realized that oh they're part of it they're not just extra mm-hmm. you know so is don't fear the reaper about those non-human uh, characters i'm just kidding but not about those specific non-human characters <laughs> There is a non-human character that plays a role. I am. uh, I am curious, though, is it 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 is a direct sequel like this whole trilogy or is it? okay? cool. I have to ask because of the title, too, if you saw X recently or at all. I did. Yeah, Yeah. no. X was fun. Yeah. Yeah. Loved it. (laughs) Because the uh, yeah, the use of Don't Fear the Reaper, obviously, was was very inspired and same. And it's also prominently featured in the Stan miniseries from 1994. It is. And both Stan series, I think it starts with Don't Fear the Reaper. And it's also it's also a big part of Scream. And also the first time that I hear it in movies is um, Halloween 78, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it, it's killer. It's um, is, is there anything else you can tell us about the trilogy um, to sort of, you know, because I believe the next one comes out next year, right? Yes, February. Cool. Yeah, it comes out. Yeah, Don't For The Reaper hits in February. It was supposed to come out in August, actually, here in like two or three months. But um, well, I can't do calendar math very good. Whatever, however many months away <laughs> August is, that's when it was supposed to come out. But um, pandemic supply issues pushed it back to February, which is which is fine with me. I'm just happy. I'm just honestly always feel lucky I have a book coming out. You know, I'm not going to yeah. complain too much about the details the particulars and i'm really happy that saga is good at marketing and distributing and all that stuff but um um what can i tell you about the trilogy don't fear the reaper is set what is it three four years let's see three like three and a half years or something after my heart is a chainsaw when jade returns to proof rock and it's winter now um and i think it's winter probably solely because so many people have been wanting to see jason Voorhees in the snow and i don't have jason Voorhees, but i can do indian lake in the snow anyways you know and um as for the third one i'm actually what is it may 3rd i'm two days late for starting that one because it's due this summer and i told myself that whatever that whatever happens i'm going to stop i'm going to have this other novel done by may 1st so i can start the sequel or the third book in the in the indian lake trilogy but then i ended up going off to texas for four or five days and that killed all my writing time so i'm right now i think today i've written about seven thousand words and i might finish this novel tonight it might take until wednesday or thursday i don't know but i'm really really close to the end of this it's another slasher novel i'm writing and then i can start the third chainsaw book and um tell you the truth 
I don't know what the title is going to be. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure what's going to happen, but I didn't have any idea of what was going to happen to Don't Fear the Reaper either. I just like Don't Fear the Reaper had a whole host of different names before it finally landed on Don't Fear the Reaper. And um, and yeah, I never knew what was going to happen in Don't Fear the Reaper. It was a continual surprise for me. And I trust that this third book is going to be the same. So it's, yeah. it's called the Indian Lake Trilogy. And the second yep. one sounds like it's also set in Proof Rock. And yes. I feel like this is a theme that has started with John Darnio last episode, Devil House, like these are all deeply concerned with the relationship of, of place to horror. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I feel like even when slashers are known by their killers, you can also yeah. trace back and be like, oh, but they also have this very specific place. They need like a town that is delineated to prowl. Um, yeah. Do you view that? Do you view setting in general as, as pretty essential to horror? I'm struggling to think of something where where place isn't really essential. You know, I wonder I wonder if that's why... Um... Like people like Scream One more than two and three because Scream Two is on that college campus. Scream Three is in Hollywood, so we kind of we kind of lose the setting, you know. Um, yeah. And and then four comes back home, you know. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah. That is five. Um, um, I think the the wonderful thing about reusing a place, a setting in horror is that it becomes charged. You know, it, you walk by a tree and it's like dramatic irony the characters don't know what part that tree played in the last installment but we the audience the readers we completely know who died against that tree you know and and so by the third by like see the third installment the characters are walking through a very charged space and everything is like more electric i think so yes that's a good observation i do think that place is important to horror and it probably you might be right that it's a um thing that's been um I don't know, being foregrounded more, more recently, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Very cool. Uh, well, as we wrap up here, I'd love it if uh, you could provide us with perhaps some of your favorite contemporary horror authors or specific books, specific stories, anything that you would recommend to our readers who are interested in finding more contemporary horror. What are some of your yeah. recommendations? Man, I always recommend Sarah Grant's Come Closer. That book just terrifies me to no end. It may be the scariest novel I've ever read. I think the most disturbing is probably Jet Ketchum's The Girl Next Door. Yeah. uh, (laughs) That one will fuck you up. (laughs) I've read that book 13 times trying to figure it out. I'm I'm kind of worried that it might have reprogrammed me or something. (laughs) But no, Come Closer is just, it's so short, so direct, and so elegantly good you know um jimma files experimental film i think that is a model of how to do a horror novel you know um and i said it before but king's outsider is amazing mm, i think yeah it, it takes an urban legend and makes it real you know and it's it's so cool um paul Tremblay's head full of ghosts grady hendrix he's got i mean they both have a lot of books with grady hendrix i think my favorite of his is probably my best friend's exorcism grady's yeah. really good at um at putting heart in the horror you know and that's a that's a tricky thing to do mike flanagan is really good at it too with these series and his movies right right Um, you know i'm really liking Haley piper stuff a whole lot um and man i guess i could go on and on and on but um (laughs) um you know one book that never gets talked about in a horror context which i really really like i've read this book a lot of times i bet i've read it five or seven times by now is mike bacovin's fantastic land from Ooh, i don't know that one i want to say 2015 it's about um, a hurricane hits Florida and these people get stranded at an amusement park and kind of goes Lord of the Flies-ish, but like turned up to 11, you know? Yeah. And, um, and I just cannot get enough of that book. Um, and, you know, another one that we all just kind of assume, but we never talk about, I think, it's also oral history, like Fantastic Land is oral history, which is that old Studs Terkel style of telling a story or a kind of like a cultural moment is um, Max Brooks's World War Z, which I oh, think yeah. is unusually brilliant that novel deserved to stay on top as long as it stayed on top i'm due for a reread of that one i feel like once the Mm -hmm. movie came out people did kind of like let it slip under the radar a little bit they did yeah the audio production of that is brilliant too because you know max brooks kind of has a lot of ties to that audio world you know so he was able to bring the right people in to do it the perfect way yeah um you mentioned The Outsider. Have you re- have you kept up with uh, some of King's like latest novels? Yeah, yeah. Like I, I think I reviewed later for the who is it? The Washington Post, maybe. It nice. Could have been Wall Street Journal. I don't know. But um, yeah, like that. Let's see, Revival, Billy Summers. Um, 
I think I'm pretty caught up on him. The, um, I would say if you're a Tommy Knockers fan, uh, the Gwendy trilogy that he co-wrote yeah. with Richard Chismar, yeah. it's uh, it's ups and downs, but overall I'd highly recommend it. But I would say the the sort of note that it leads you on is lovely. And I think the same way that the Tommy Knockers is, although it's a decidedly less, um, I'd say, like gut churning story. But yeah. uh, I think in terms of the the kind of like, uh, I don't know, lonely beauty of um, that. And it goes to outer space, which is it really does. Fun. I've heard yeah. that third one goes to outer space. I read the first one. I haven't got around to the second, the second two yet. But I'm, yeah, you know, I know Chismar can write, and of course King can write. So how can it not be good? You know. Yeah. <laughs> one last question before we let you go. Um, I'm just curious because you have a Pangborn in your book. Uh-huh. Was that an intentional ode to King or just an unconscious? I think it was unconscious. I think that just kind of seeped its way in. You know. Sure. <laughs> Like, uh, like I have a really hard time not using all the names in One Floor of the Cuckoo's Nest because I think those are all a perfect set of names. But yeah. I, know are, I know people are going to call me on it. So I'm always like, don't use Cuckoo's Nest. Don't use Cuckoo's Nest. And then I think I do end up going to King for a lot of stuff. Names, yeah. are, names are hard. I go, I walk through cemeteries for names. It's my favorite excuse. Yeah. <laughs> Well, every time I read one of your books now, I'll look for a martini in there. So, uh, Well, thank you so much, Stephen. This was an absolute blast. Uh, my Heart is a Chainsaw is out now. Uh, Don't Fear the Reaper is out next year. And it sounds like you've got much more in the works. So we're going to be keeping an eye out. And uh, yeah, can't wait to read more from you. It was great talking to you all. Thank you all for having me. Thank you. Thanks so much, Stephen. Have a good one. Y'all too. Later. I got some hot friends. This is the end of our show, for now. Tune in next week. If you like our programming, consider searching for other bloody disgusting podcasts, such as Creepy, Horror Queers, The Boo Crew, SCP Archives, Nightlight, Margaret's Garden, and more.